Welcome to Always On Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. I'm Rosemary Maffey. And I'm Tom Lyman. We're coming to you from the Archdiocese of Boston. We hope to bring you some joy and some encouragement during this challenging time. Every week we do that by profiling the life of a saint, as well as somebody who is living the new evangelization in these challenging times right now. Welcome back to our listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening on Apple, please do rate us. How's it going, Tom? Pretty good, Rosemary. And yourself? Doing great. You know, I have to say, Tom, that I really love that there are such signs of great hope, even amidst these challenging times. And we just came out of such a beautiful weekend. We celebrated the Feast of Corpus Christi, and we launched the Year of the Eucharist in our Archdiocese. It's such a wonderful initiative of Cardinal Sean, and I was so pleased when he decided to decree this year of the Eucharist, really because the need to draw attention to the real presence of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist could not be greater. And so I'm excited to engage in this major effort uh, to really help our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church and in our whole community to understand this is what we believe. Please join us in this amazing year. I encourage you to check out bostoncatholic.org slash year of the Eucharist. So Tom, as our team continues to focus on mission, be it with the year of the Eucharist or with the Forming Disciples in Mission workshop that we're continuing tonight virtually, whatever it is that we do, we know how important organizational health is or strong leadership. All of these are important ingredients to really live out the mission. So that's why I'm so excited about our conversation with Kevin Cotter of Amazing Parish. But first, let's start as we always do with our saint for the day. So who is it today, Tom? This week, Rosemary, we are going to talk about San Francesco d'Assisi, St. Francis of Assisi, so well known by many, uh, but we wanted to, to call upon him and to, to profile him for his particular association with a theme that we'll talk about with Kevin later on. But when we talk about St. Francis, I would like to take all of you who've been cooped up at home and unable to go on vacation uh, on a little virtual walk, uh, a, a kind of a mental walk of the town of Assisi. That sounds fun. Yeah, so let, let's kind of imagine that we're walking the stone streets of Assisi uh, on down these narrow lanes with flowers overflowing the windowsills and, you know, churches in every on every little piazza and signs of St. Francis and the Franciscan charism everywhere you turn. And so we begin in 1182 and we're going to start in um, this little piazza slightly down the hill from the main street of Assisi, where you'll find the Chiesa Nuova, the new church. And this, um, this church contains within it the, arche the archaeological remains of the home, the childhood home where St. Francis grew up. He was born in 1182 and taken just across the way behind his house to a small chapel where he would have been baptized. And that chapel is a place you can visit today. It's almost like a stable. It's so uh, dark and kind of um, uh, built into the wall. There are no really windows on the sides, but it's a beautiful little devotional place there to imagine the, the child Francis baptized in that very place and receiving the Holy Spirit that would 
uh, forever guide him and that he would cooperate with in such an extraordinary way that would go on to revolutionize the church. So there in the Kiesanova, this is where the house of Francis was. And as a youth, Francis was uh, uh, a really a passionate young man. He loved to sing. He loved to go about the streets with his friends and you know, kind of noisy groups. And eventually, uh, when he came of age, he joined the military at age 20. That's the year 1202. Well, uh, he was caught in a battle and jailed at a certain point. But while there, he had some sort of mystical prayer experience. And so this is kind of a a conversion from the rather worldly life he had been living. Um, you know, not unlike St. Ignatius of Loyola, he really who was living the life of a soldier, a very worldly life. He had this conversion in kind of captivity in this case. Um, later on, Francis decides, okay, I'm going to join the Pope's army. And so he makes his way toward Rome. Uh, but while he's in Spoleto, he has a mystical prayer experience. Uh, something happened. We don't know the specifics of it, I don't think. He returns to Assisi and he begins to deepen in a life of prayer. And he begins seeking out, seeking to encounter God in deep solitude, which he found actually going to caves. He would have a friend kind of watch out for him at the entrance of the cave and he would just hide out there in quiet with the Lord. So St. Francis received many messages from God in prayer, which is so beautiful. What message did he receive at San Damiano? So at San Damiano, um, he went to go pray in this kind of dilapidated little chapel, uh, which is sort of outside of the center of town. It was in an area that um, had actually been overtaken uh, by by wild animals, by wolves, you know, which um, wolves generally don't go where there's civilization. They kind of show up once it's a place has been abandoned. You know, that's kind of a a sign of what's happening in a place. So this place was somewhat abandoned. And he's there praying in the church at San Damiano. No, no, this is not a big church. This is really a chapel, a small place. And he's praying before a crucifix. And this is, um, now we all know, maybe many of us know this famous painted crucifix, a medieval style of crucifix painted probably in the 11th century, 12th century, um, that showed many little side scenes depicting the, the crucifixion, death, uh, of the Lord and even elements of the resurrection. But praying before that crucifix, the Lord Jesus spoke to him. This, you know, Jesus on the cross spoke to Francis and said, go and repair my church. That's amazing. Go and repair my church, you know? And so he begins repairing this simple country chapel thinking that, okay, this church is kind of in tough shape. I'm going to start fixing it up. So he takes, undertakes the effort to begin repairing this church. And then he begins to go start to invest the money that he had because he was from the nobility. His family was, his father was a wealthy uh, cloth merchant. Uh, his mother may have been from France. So he, in fact, himself had probably, he had traveled to France quite a bit. His name even means Francesco means the Frenchman. Francia is the Italian word for France. So uh, it wasn't actually his given name. His given name was John, Giovanni. And so he was, you know, had this association. He was kind of a someone who was traveled, had some money, begins to invest money in fixing churches around Assisi. And this starts to anger his father. Uh, so let, let's pause for a minute here. That cross, if you wanted to go see that cross and pray before it, 
you can still do so today. And the cross is beautifully preserved and cared for in a side chapel of the Basilica di Santa Chiara, the Basilica of St. Clair, which is the same place where St. Clair herself is buried. And you can also venerate her relics and pray before her tomb. You know, she is the foundress of the Poor Clares, a wonderful Franciscan community of women religious. So there, you can pray before the crucifix of San Damiano in the same way that St. Francis did, listening for the Lord's call. So St. Francis's father is starting to get angry at him. He's squandering his inheritance, fixing all these churches. And at some point, his father kind of confines him to the family home. Go back to that home that we visited before in the old church of Chiesa Nuova. And you can see today the cell where uh, Francis's dad chained him in this, basically like a closet or a cell in the house. He was so upset with him. Uh, well, I think his mother prevailed on his father to release him. And there is a statue outside this church today showing uh, his father and his mother, his mother kind of talking to his father saying, you know, come on, you know, he's our son, Francis, let him go, you know, and, and there's Francis kind of being released reluctantly by his dad from these chains. Uh, so that place is there today. So, but it's still true. His father took him to court over this, <laughs> you know, pretty bad when dad sues you, you know, over your, your, your behavior, but in public, uh, Francis renounces all his public possessions. Now, I actually stayed on the square where Francis did this. I stayed in a, uh, a convent of sisters that they run as a hostel for pilgrims. So as a pilgrim there myself, I've done this. I stayed on my window open right on the square where Francis stood and he gave away all his stuff. He literally took all his stuff and chucked it in the square and says, take it back, dad. I don't want it. He even took off all of his clothes, like naked. He took everything off and left it there. He says, even take my clothes, dad. I don't need it. And the bishop who was present, can you imagine he's like disrobing in front of the bishop? The bishop came over to him and, you know, clothed him in his own cloak. And he's like, you know, please put something on Francis, you know? And so at this moment, this is when his conversion becomes much more final. Like he's he's made a major renunciation of his life of wealth. Um, he's given it up publicly, and he's kind of separated in a way from his family. You know, and it, you know now he, he's he's taking God as his father. He's not like disowning his family, but he's kind of identifying a new life for himself, and it's not going to be the life of wealth and property that his his family had. Tom, how powerful that you were actually able to visit that spot where he had such a major conversion. And I understand the words of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 7 to 10, meant a great deal to Francis. These verses say, as you go, make this proclamation. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, drive out demons without cost you have received, without cost you are to give. Do not take gold or silver or copper for your belts, no sack for the journey, or a second tunic, or sandals, or walking stick. The laborer deserves his keep. Yes, so these words mean a great deal to Francis because he um, went to 
visit the what a small chapel um, that was known as the Portiuncola. And this is outside of the, the center of Assisi, really in a plain, kind of a flat stretch of land on the road that leads to Assisi, which is located almost entirely on a hillside. It really is on a hillside. Everything is up, up, up or down on, in Assisi. And so he's in this little tiny chapel. And during the mass, the gospel was what you just read, Rosemary. And when he heard those words, it hit home in a serious way. He'd heard these words many times before in the gospel of life as a Catholic, but this time it meant something different. And so he began to adopt a religious habit, a very simple habit, and he tied around his waist a rope. And so you can begin to see the birth of the Franciscan habit that we recognize today, even in a Capuchin Franciscan like Cardinal Sean, who dresses in the same fashion, you know, 800 years later, um, he begins to gather companions to himself and they compose a simple rule. And at the center of it is devotion to what he called Lady Poverty. And so they would embrace Lady Poverty, not a literal lady, but this poverty, uh, that that would keep them close to Christ. It was a radical simplicity. And they began wandering the countryside preaching. And they lived what we now would call a mendicant life. And so mendicant means begging. And so they supported themselves um, not by major donations or things like this, but by literally begging for everything, asking for food, asking for what they needed, and and receiving it in humility from those who had to offer it. And they literally depended on God, just as that gospel of Matthew chapter 10 um, describes. They did not carry money for the journey. And we still have some Franciscans here in the Archdiocese of Boston uh, who actually follow that primitive rule, the Franciscans of the primitive observance. They literally carry no money. They have no cash. They depend on every meal by begging around the neighborhood where they live. And um, they don't even have a phone or technology. They they rely on other means of, you know, connecting face to face in person. What a great example that is of a true reliance on God. He was living this charism very literally. And so in 1209, the 13th century, he petitions Pope Innocent III for approval. Um, and at first he was reluctant. This type of religious life was new. This had not been being done. Religious life was really kind of more the monastic, uh, confined to an enclosure before. But now we have a religious community going out and um, preaching wherever they would travel, to ever to whomever would listen. So it's a new kind of religious life, and he grants approval. In the year 1212, um, a, a young woman who was fascinated by this charism that Francis was living um, petitions to start a community of women. And this is St. Clair, um, a close associate of his, and she begins the Poor Clares, also in Assisi. At this point, as he gathers more and more people around him, they begin preaching tours around Europe. Uh, and they went everywhere. They went to Spain. They went to Austria and Germany. They went to Dalmatia, which we now would know as the former Yugoslav state, so Serbia and uh, Montenegro and, and um, Bosnia, all of those, Croatia, all of those places. He even preached about Jesus to the Sultan in Egypt. So, I mean, this is, he. there were no limits. He was not afraid. He went right into what would have been the lion's den. I mean, Christians at this time, this is around the time of the, uh, of the Crusades, uh, 
common for Christians to to be slaughtered at that time in those lands, he went to the Sultan himself, preached Jesus to him. Many other Franciscans would die at the hands of those who were not so receptive to this message um, in, in North Africa. But when he returned from Egypt, he discovered that this community he'd left behind a few years ago was growing rapidly um, and that such a major organization was going to require a new rule. And he kind of um, steps back as the administrator of it, but remains the spiritual leader. So a new rule is given to the Franciscan community in uh, 1223, and they decide to become the Order of Friars Minor, the Little Brothers, you know, um, in humility, this would be their name. Uh, and so an, another thing happened in St. Francis's life, and this is again uh, critical uh, for understanding Francis and his desire to be close to Christ. So he's in Laverna, Tuscany. This is in the eastern province of the Tuscan region known as Arezzo province. Um, if you've ever seen the movie, um, Life is Beautiful, uh, that is filmed in the beginning scenes in the city of Arezzo, Eastern Tuscany. So he's there. And on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, September 14th, 1224, uh, Francis becomes enraptured in the spirit and receives an amazing vision, which is that of a seraph, you know, so an angel, a six-winged angel, a seraph, crucified on a cross. And at that same time, Francis himself receives the gift of the stigmata and receives the five wounds of Christ. Both his hands, both his feet and his side begin painfully bleeding just as Christ's wounds did. Um, and this, you know, this was hard. Receiving the stigmata is uh, a great gift, but it's also a gift with great cost and uh, painful uh, cost him illness, weakness, and he begins to lose his sight. Um, but in 1225, he begins composing what we know as the Canticle of the Sun. And uh, many of our listeners may not know this, but Francis is actually considered in Italian linguistic history as the first, one of the earliest composers in what we now call the early form of the modern Italian language. Um, he would have been writing in the Umbrian dialect, the Umbria as the region where Assisi is, um, similar dialect to the Tuscan. Uh, and today the Tuscan dialect forms the basis of modern standard Italian. Um, and so he wrote in this language, so, Tom, what's our final stop on this tour through Assisi? So we'll take a moment. I want to transport our, our listeners back to the Assisi of, um, of Francis's day. And they say that he would have composed this in the chapel at San Damiano. And this, for those who speak Italian, sounds a little different from modern Italian, but you can understand it. I myself can read it, though I don't know the Umbrian dialect myself. It's called the Cantico delle Creature. Altissimo, omnipotente, bon signore, tue sole laude la gloria e l'onore, e omne benedizione, a te solo, altissimo, se confano, et nullo omo enedigno te mentovare. Laudato sia mi signore, con tutte le tue creature, specialmente me sorlo frate sole, lo qual giorna et alumini noi per loi. Et ello e bello e radiante con grande splendore, de te altissimo, 
porta significazione. That says, Canticle of the Living Creatures, Highest, Omnipotent, Good Lord, Yours are the praises, the glory and the honor, and every blessing. To you alone, Most High, do they belong, and no man is worthy to speak your name. Praise be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially our brother, master, son, who makes day and through whom you give us light, and he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor. He brings meaning from you, O Most High. And this goes on for several stanzas more. And there are many hymns composed based on the canticle of, son, of the sun, like All Praises to Our Living King, uh, which is a common, uh, a common hymn that we sing in Easter time. So um, you had a question, I think, Rosemary. <laughs> What's our final stop, Tom, on this wonderful tour you've given us through Assisi? Well, our final stop, you know, and I actually omitted to mention St. Francis's final days. So he composed the Canticle of the Sun, but uh, he was weakened in those years, we know, going blind, dying. Uh, as he's dying, he's at the Porziuncola, where he actually lived in his final days. He lived, and I've seen this, you can you can visit this, in a cell on the lower level. It was a place that was no higher then if you were sitting down and you raised your hand to shoulder height, you couldn't even sit all the way up in this cell. I mean, it was it like to say it was like a, a cellar wouldn't be enough. It was almost like a, a crawl space that he was sleeping in. And he slept with a rock for his pillow. I mean, there'd be rats running around him. We know that um, he, he adored all creatures and adore. He, he loved all creatures, saw God in all of them. And, you know, legend says that he spoke to them, but he asked to die naked on the naked earth. He insisted that he be allowed to die this way uh, in this great discomfort, offering up this you know, penance um, for sins. And so he, this is the way that he died, naked on the naked ground. And today, our last stop is the Basilica, Basilica di San Francesco, the great Basilica of St. Francis, where his tomb is. Uh, he was buried in this place. And because his brothers knew that uh, his followers from around Europe would flock to his grave to try to take any relic they could from his tomb. They buried him deep under the ground and put huge stones, many, many stones over the place where he was buried. So there'd be no way that anyone would possibly get to his relics. So he, he still to this day is deeply concealed behind many, many heavy stones. Um, if you go there today, it is an, an, an amazing, incredible uh, memorial to this saint, but above all, a place to encounter God. And when I went there to Sunday Mass just about four years ago, the place was packed for a regular Sunday Mass. And when that organ played, it was just filled, uh, this huge basilica with this glorious sound that just reverberated through this medieval uh, Gothic basilica. And on the walls are paintings, frescoes of scenes from all of different parts, all different parts of Francis's life and that of the, the life of the Franciscan community. Um, and so what does it say? You know, I mean, Francis and his spirituality became more widely known than any other across Europe. Uh, to say that he was like a rock star in his time, and I've mentioned this before with St. Elizabeth of Hungary, he was. I mean, he was so well known um, across Europe, places large and small. 
there was an undeniable attraction to the Franciscan life. And many men and women joined the Franciscan communities of men and women religious, and also the secular communities. He founded also communities for lay men and women to live this charism in their daily lives. My own wife is actually following this call herself to join the secular Franciscan community. And we have a, a number of them around the Archdiocese of Boston and around New England. Um, and so that charism has a great attraction to this day. Um, today, what does this mean for us, Rosemary? You know, Francis's call to rebuild, rather Jesus' call to rebuild my church that Francis heard and did still resonates today. He recognized the need wasn't to rebuild these little chapels. It was to rebuild the faithful. It was to rebuild a devotion and a love of God and living a life of closeness to Christ in whatever way we can, in our own poverty, in our own penances, sacrifices, uh, our own prayers. And, and Francis and his followers did that and still do today. But we too, Rosemary, need to uh, find ways to rebuild our church here, wherever we are, in whatever way God is calling us to. Thank you so much, Tom, for sharing about the life of St. Francis and his response to the call from the Lord to rebuild the church. Could you close us in a prayer? Absolutely. And this is the prayer uh, of St. One of the prayers of St. Francis. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Francis of Assisi so beautifully responded to the call from the Lord to rebuild the church. The same can really be said for our guest, Kevin Cotter, and his wonderful work at Amazing Parish. But before that conversation, hit pause. We want to hear from you. How do you think the Lord is calling you to build up the church? Share with us what you think on social media. Use the hashtag alwaysonmission and tag us. Our handle is RCAB underscore evangelize. Stay tuned for our conversation with Kevin Cotter. Welcome back to Always On Mission, Evangelizing in Challenging Times. Tom and I are thrilled to be joined by Kevin Cotter, Executive Director of Amazing Parish. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. And Kevin, Tom and I, we really know how important it is to focus on organizational health and strong leadership in order to achieve the mission. So we have great respect for what you're doing at Amazing Parish. But before we dive into that, share with us a little bit about your background, your family, um, just a little bit about your story leading up to your time at Amazing Parish. 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, graduate of Benedictine College, both my wife and myself. And that's where just a great Catholic school that we got to be a part of. Uh, went to the Gus Institute following there and just got a lot of great formation uh, in getting a master's in scripture. And then joined Focus uh, right after, really a family mission. So joined as a missionary, I was on campus uh, for two years as a missionary, and then at Focus's headquarters uh, for nine years. Worked mostly in curriculum and web and social media and a bunch of fun stuff like that. And then joined the Amazing Parish as the executive director just a couple years ago. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about Amazing Parish. Yeah, so Amazing Parish started about seven years ago and really with the sense of needing parish renewal. There's so much great renewal going on in the church. There's so many great apostolates. We just talked about uh, my involvement with Focus or, or Benedictine College. Those are just many, some of the many examples of pockets of renewal throughout the church. But when you get to the parish, uh, that's where really the rubber meets the road. And sometimes it can be a bit more trickier. And so Amazing Parish was really designed, I, I love our name, just because uh, when people hear the words Amazing Parish, um, often pretty much any Catholic I talk to goes, oh, that's what I want. Like, I want to be in an amazing parish, but so often even, you know, uh, they're, they're like, I, but I'm not, you know, and, and what can we do to do that? And so that's really uh, our mission is to try to create that, try to give that vision that as Catholics, um, it's not okay. Uh, it's great that we have renewal in different pockets, but uh, the parish is where we really need to see the church shine. It's really the foundation. It's those missionary centers throughout the entire world that the church has uh, to live out its mission. And if if those parishes aren't healthy, if they're not a great place spiritually and with teamwork, then ultimately they're, as a church, we're not going to succeed. We're not going to care at Christ's mission in the church. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about either a parish that has come to you during the pandemic or one that you've been working with for a while that has kind of upped their game during the pandemic? Yeah, you know, as the pandemic happened, leadership, you know, can can rise to the top. And so we've definitely seen from our parishes that have gone through this, they've uh, lived out, you know, the amazing parish, um, you know, all, all the great things we've seen, probably many of them online, whether it's drive-through confessions or, you know, outdoor masses, you know, Pastors really getting creative on how they can get the gospel out there, doing thing on things on Zoom. I would say um, the most moving thing for us, though, is this time, I think for all of us, has helped our perspective on things, right? We have these rhythms of life and these patterns that we go through, and, and the pandemic allows us to step back from those and see, how am I living my life? And for a lot of our pastors, we've really challenged them, are you praying with your teams? Are you praying with your staffs? And many of them, for many of them, or even ha are you sharing your faith walk? Have you ever shared your, your, your journey, your testimony with your staff? And to be really honest, many of our pastors are very frightened by that idea. They're frightened to actually ask their staff, let's all share our faith journey together. It's just this interesting thing that happens in parishes. And so I think some of the coolest breakthrough moments, while we love all the external things, right? We love all the, the gospel going out there and the sacraments and weddings happening even with COVID and drive-through confessions. All those things are great. But for a pastor to sit down and have the courage to ask his team, what's your faith journey like? Let's all, let's all share that and just get that out there. The difference that makes on their team and the stories we've heard of people where their staff's been contentious with one another, where staff members for years have had grudges against one another, all of a sudden you see, start to see those walls break down and they say, actually, instead of them having a grudge, they're actually praying for one another on a daily basis. And you went, oh my gosh, if our, if our parish staffs are at war with one another, if they're not praying with one another, if they're not sharing their faith with one another, how could we 
ever in our wildest dreams expect the gospel to just thrive in our parishes. It's it's a no-brainer, but this is the situation many pastors, many staffs find themselves in, and we want that program, we want that silver bullet to, to do this great work, and, and I love all those things. But unless we work out some of these really harder issues, these team dynamics, this discipleship happening in our offices, I really don't think any of those other great things will happen. And this pandemic's given us a chance to really challenge pastors to do that and to find the time for that. And the results have been really a beautiful thing. Kevin, tell us a little bit about how the mission of Amazing Parish may have perhaps not changed, but shifted when the pandemic hit. Yeah. So at the Amazing Parish, what we really focus on, the first step for us is really emphasizing leadership of a pastor. And most people, that sounds kind of funny. It's like, oh, well, they're the pastor. Like, they already understand leadership, but really we don't assume that many priests, especially in our day and age, find themselves in a role as a pastor. And they may not have always wanted to be one. They wanted to be a priest. They wanted to serve God's people. They wanted to be pastoral. But because of the lack of priests, many times they find themselves uh, very er- probably earlier than that, that they should be and without as much formation in the role of a pastor, someone who's leading this Uh, spiritual organization, someone that's leading this really a a small business in a lot of ways, and that can create them to be very overwhelmed. And so that's where we really start is with that leadership. And what um, the pandemic did in many ways is in crisis situations, leadership either rises to the top or it struggles. And so as an organization, while we work with, you know, we have conferences and we work with leadership teams and we help people strategize and really become amazing parishes, we went really back to that first step and said, these pastors need help in this leadership because that crisis brings that out. And, and we've really focused on that more than anything. So it's increased a lot of our, our calls. We do a lot of coaching uh, via, via Zoom. And it's really increased our coaching, especially just one-on-one with pastors and say, what's going through your mind right now as a leader? And how can we encourage you? How can we help you? Even at times, how can we challenge you to step up in leadership in this time? And it's, um, while there's not too much good to speak of from the pandemic, it has been a good thing as we people can respond to that crisis and you get to see your leadership, you get to see your coaching in a, in a new light in challenging times. Tell us a little bit, Kevin, about um, how the pandemic may have affected your own walk with the Lord. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, uh, I think like most people, it just really puts things in perspective, right? There's there's a different sense of time and where we're, where you're at and thinking through things. Uh, there's a different sense of rhythm and habits uh, and how you go about your life. And so just taking that step back, I think for me, is just inviting the Lord in, into my life more. I've been uh, reading a book called Interior Freedom oh, yeah. by Jacques Philippe yeah. quite a bit. That's been, That's a great um, book. been my heartbeat. And it's so good because Philippe talks about no matter what situation, no matter what circumstance, circumstance you find yourself in, we can always choose the Lord every single time. No situation um, prevents us from having faith, hope, and love in the Lord. And certainly this pandemic, while more challenging, while more difficult, still allows us to make that decision. And so that's been kind of my heartbeat throughout this pandemic is, is reading into your freedom and for me to find that freedom despite the situation. So Kevin, even in stable times, it can be challenging for leaders to build and sustain healthy organizations. What are some recommendations you'd give to leaders in parishes, ministries, dioceses about how to effectively be strategic about evangelization with all the uncertainty, even in our immediate future? 
Yeah, that's a great question because I think when it comes down to it, you know, I, uh, I I love evangelization working for Focus. I've written a book on evangelization. Uh, we live in an age where, fortunately, there's so it's it's very very much more normal to speak about evangelization in a Catholic context, which is a beautiful thing, a beautiful thing, uh, and so. We can get into strategy quite a bit. We can look at numbers and data and programs and all these different things. And all, all those serve a purpose and can be good. At Amazing Parish, we really try to focus really on person-to-person evangelization because that's where everything can really start and flow. And even when we speak of a pastor and a leadership team, when we're speaking to parish renewal, we really encourage them before they just jump out into a program, we say, are you guys praying together as a team? Father, like, are, are you praying with the people who are on your leadership team? Are you praying with the people who are in your parish office? That might be, you know, full-time workers, part-time, it might be volunteers. Do you all have a great relationship with yourselves and, and the Lord and being, being a disciple and, and doing that? Because if you're not on the same page, if you're not together in this, when you go a step out into the parish and try to help parishioners, they're going to get a sense of that. They're going to get a sense that, oh, this isn't normal even among you all, but you're asking us to do something that you don't do yourselves. And so again, while those data and program and strategy are so important, if we don't lead as leaders, and I know this from my, my own organization as well, if I don't lead it myself, if I don't let it organically grow from who I am and what I think uh, should happen and live that out, um, then ultimately it's not going to be effective. And so that's really our starting point at His Amazing Parish is getting those pastors, getting those teams up and running and on board themselves before they start to move into the parish with more strategy. What great advice. Start one-on-one, lead by example, be rooted in prayer. Absolutely. Kevin, can you expand upon the wonderful offerings that Amazing Parish supplies us as we try to live out the mission and how might folks become more involved? Yeah, so I mentioned before, you know, we have this whole whole thing of trying to help pastors with their leadership uh, we love to surround them with a leadership team and also really help them with strategy and clarity about who they are as a parish and how they can move forward to become an amazing parish. And there's a few ways to get involved uh, right now, especially during COVID. We've been running lots of different webinars. We've had hundreds, even thousands of pastors join us and also parish workers uh, join us for these webinars. We have one coming up on June 18th. It's actually our last one in our series and just a great, uh, it's a pastors only webinar. So for the pastors out there, um, this is on leadership and how to really step up in leadership um, as a pastor. And so we'd love to have you uh, in for that webinar. You can check uh, all the information out at amazingparish.org. Also, a lot of our process, obviously we have webinars and different informational things, but a lot of our process starts off with our conferences. So we have a conference coming up in Kansas City in October, and that's where a pastor is going to bring his leadership team and really begin to understand further uh, the three key cultures that we have at His Amazing Parish, a uh, culture of prayer, a culture of teamwork, and a culture of discipleship, and really inundate uh, their team with those cultures so that they can begin to spread them throughout their parish. As I talked about before, it really starts with a team living out something, and in this case, these three cultures, and they can allow that to spread to the rest of their parish. So we have those conferences, and then following that, that conference, we have coaching uh, with Amazing Parish, usually a call about once a month with a coach and the pastor and his team. Uh, all the coaching is done for free just to really help support those teams coming off that conference. And it really helped them grow that culture uh, to live it first on their team and then out to their staff and into their parish. Uh, along the way, we're going to help with strategy and, and really help you uh, be more effective in your work in, in, uh, in the parish. But um, yeah, it's just such, uh, I, I love talking about what we do just because it's um, really gets to the root of a lot of the issues we see in parishes and helps people move forward on, on missions. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing. 
That's great. Well, we definitely encourage pastors and other leaders on on pastoral teams to check out everything you have to offer. Fantastic. I'd love that. One question we ask all of our interviewees, all of our guests, is what does it mean to you to be always on mission? In my mind, it's it's really um, it's about a mindset, right? I think that's one of the best things I have um, from my time with Focus and just having that missionary mindset is um, I can't help but not think in a missionary uh, mode. Ho- hopefully, most of the time, I uh, was really um, blessed to be a sponsor, someone who came to the church this last Easter, and we thought about our relationship and where it all began and how this whole thing got started. And it was really a four-year journey of just walking with him um, and through so many things. And where it got started, it was fun to like exchange stories after um, he came into the church, is I said, I I walked into our parish basement. It was like back to school night. And there's people all across um, that I knew that were my friends. I hadn't seen them for a while. They're friends and acquaintances. And so many people I was so excited to talk to. But when I walked in the room, I saw this guy and the guy who I eventually sponsored was the guy. And he had all these tattoos on his arms. And he had these little kids. And I just looked at him and I went, you're not. It was like one of those. It was like, you're not from around here. Like this isn't a normal place to be. And what I learned from focus was just that mindset. While I want to go talk to all my friends, that'd be much more uh, important. They gave me that missionary mindset to say, oh, no, the guy with the tattoos, like that's why I'm here. Like that's why our parish exists. Like. My parish doesn't exist to talk to my friends. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But my, my my parish exists to be missionary. And so if I'm here and I don't talk to that guy first, who does who clearly doesn't feel like not that you can't be a Catholic and have tattoos, but he he just didn't look like he he knew anyone. He didn't look like he belonged. Actually, that's that's it. And so I think to be always on mission is to always have that mindset because it just changes how you uh, think. It changes it changes really how you walk into a room and how you operate. Thanks so much, Kevin. I think that's wonderful advice for all of us to really be open to how the Holy Spirit's guiding us in whatever particular circumstance we find ourselves so that we might go up to that person and and share the good news and and share with them how loved they are. Um, So thank you for this. It's been such an encouraging discussion. And if anyone wants to check out more about Amazing Parish, I encourage you to go to amazingparish.org. Kevin, could you kindly close us in a prayer? I'd love to. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, uh, wherever we're at right now, whenever we're listening to this, we just um, encounter you. We want to encounter you as the crucified and risen Lord. Encounter you as the one who loves us, the one who gave himself up for us, the one who's risen from the dead and wants to lead us to that eternal life, both in heaven and also to experience that abundant life here on earth. And so we just, Lord, stop our day, encounter you who are so real, so true. And we just want to invite you further into our lives so that we can love you more. We can glorify you and to help others do the same. In your name we pray. Amen. In the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Kevin, for joining. We want to thank you all for tuning in to Always on Mission, evangelizing in challenging times. Don't forget to subscribe to not miss an episode. If you're listening to us on Apple, please do rate us. And we look forward to being with you next week. God bless. God bless.